You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Well, let's open our message in prayer. Let me just uh, open the word in prayer. Father, thank you so much for our time together in the word today. I thank you, Father, for what you've laid on my heart and what you've helped me to prepare. I believe, Father, that it is a message by your spirit. And Father, I believe that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach and to teach the good news, the gospel. And I thank you, Father, that as the word goes forth, Lord, people's lives, including my own, will be changed and impacted by the word. And Father, I thank you that you will cause revelation to come. We believe for the teacher, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes and our hearts so that we can receive from you everything that you have for us. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for his ministry in our lives, and we believe to receive from him and I thank you, Father, that we commit ourselves to not just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers of it as well in Jesus' name. And if you're in agreement with that, can you say amen? amen. If you came in and did not receive a handout and you want to receive a handout, just hold your hand up. We have some extras in the back. If you need a pen, just hold your hand up and we'll get a pen to you. <coughs> Pardon me. So let's get into this. This is week number five in our series called Set a Guard Over My Mouth. Turn to somebody close by and say, you need a guard over your mouth. And tell them this, if you want me to, I'll help you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we need to have a guard over our mouth. And so we've been spending the previous four weeks talking about the importance of our words, the power of our words. And so let's look at some foundation scriptures we've been basing this on. The first one is found in Psalm 141, verses 2 and 3 in the New King James. And the scripture says this, the, the psalmist prayed and he said, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then he prayed this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And that is a legitimate prayer. And so... Again, we have a little bit of an advantage over the Old Testament saints in the sense of that we have the written word of God and we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us uh, to help us. <clears throat> but um, again, the emphasis is then there, there must be some importance and priority about the words that come out of our mouth. If it's worth praying about, as the psalmist did, then it's worth taking note of what we say. Turn to somebody and say, you need to watch your mouth. <laughs> All right. So let's look at it in the contemporary English version. It says this, think of my prayer as sweet smelling incense and think of my lifted hands as an evening sacrifice. And I like just the plainness of this. Help me to guard my words whenever I say something. And so again, he's praying and in essence what he's saying is, Lord, help me to weigh what I say. Let me think about and pray and, and just you know, ponder on what I'm going to say before it ever comes out of my mouth. Anybody ever said anything and then you later said, mm, I wish I hadn't have said that. Okay, well, I'm not, I have not, so uh, y'all, I will pray for y'all. 
Praise the Lord. All right. You know that's not true, don't you? And so then we looked at Proverbs 18, verses 20 through 21. Again, these are very uh, poignant scriptures. A man's stomach or his belly, his innermost being, shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life, say death and life. Say this, are in the power of the tongue. And then he goes on to say, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The uh, uh, easy to read version says this, the tongue can speak words that bring life or death and those who love to talk must be ready to accept what it brings. And so again, you need to understand, and this is the point we've been making over the previous weeks, and that is your life is filled with whatever your lips are producing. And so we spent some time, and we, I just encourage you, go and, and listen to the podcast. If you've missed any of this, uh, absolutely free. You can go and download these messages, and the notes are out there, <clears throat> excuse me, for you to be able to glean from. But I want you to understand that heaven, and when I say heaven, I mean the angels and um, the power of God along with and at the same time, the devil and his team are waiting and listening to what you are going to say in a given situation. And the reason being is because just on the negative side, the devil wants to empower the words that come out of your mouth so that they come to pass in your life. At the same time, though, God wants to get his word into your mouth so that when you speak his word, his power can be released in your life. But, but I'll, the most important thing that I want you to see is this. You are the determining factor whether what God wants to come to pass in your life comes to pass or what your adversary wants to come to pass, comes to pass. The choice is yours, and we have a, a decision to make on the words that come out of our mouths. I, I can say this to you, if what comes out of your mouth constantly is death and lack and poverty and, and all those types of things, I can promise you, you will reap the fruit of those words that come out of your mouth. Whereas if you make the decision to speak life, and what the word says about you, who you are in Christ, what Jesus has purchased for you, that you are healed, that you are the blessed of the Lord, then what heaven stands by to do is to fulfill that and cause those words to come to pass in your life. All right? So what I want to do today is I want to talk about something um, it is spiritual warfare related, but not directly. And um, I want to talk to you about, again, the power of your words. And I want to say this to you. We spent quite a bit of time last week talking about the necessity for you and me to build the word in your heart. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, you know, in Matthew 7, Jesus gave us an illustration where he talked about uh, two men, one that built his house upon the, the rock and another one built his house on the sand. And the, the difference in the, the foundation was, Jesus said, 
Those that hear my words and do them are like the one who builds on the rock. The one who hears the word and doesn't do what the word says is like the one who builds uh, on the sand. But the key is, and, and the thing that was common between both of those men was there was a storm that arose, floods came, and wind beat upon that house. So just because you hear the word and do the word does not mean you're exempt from storms. Storms come to everybody. I know that's not exciting to hear, but it's the truth. And I would be remiss if I did not tell you that. I, I would be lying to you if I told you, yeah, you got born again. Yeah, you received Christ. Yes, you, you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yes, you've gotten a hold of the word of God. You know how to believe God. And so therefore, you're never going to have any problems. That would be a lie. And I never have taught that and never will. Matter of fact, I want to say this to you, and, and <laughs> this won't be very encouraging either in one respect, and that is this. Once you get born again, once you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and once you make up your mind to believe the word of God, there is going to be a target on your back. So listen, you can count on adversity showing up. You can count on trials and tribulations and tests showing up in your life. Now again, uh, I don't say that to depress you, but it, it, you're not exempt is what I'm trying to get you to see. Now you have a choice and the good news is this, the things that I have mentioned, being born again, being filled with the Spirit, believing the Word of God, what God will do is bring you out of that adversity and bring deliverance into your life and help you come out without being uh, badly damaged in the storm. Uh, and that is the difference. We're, we're no better than people that don't know Christ and don't walk in the Word. We're just better off. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so the key is storms happen to everybody and we have a choice and, uh, you know, there's this misbelief in the body of Christ that, well, a couple, many misbeliefs, but a couple of them is this. Everything that happens in my life happens because God wants it to or God allows it. And, uh, you know, then... What that does is it causes confusion in the heart of the believer because when adversity shows up in our lives, you don't know whether to accept it or resist it or reject it. And so there's a lot of believers that are rejecting what God is wanting to do in their lives and accepting what the devil is doing in their lives and calling it God at work. Even, you know, insurance policies will call, you know, uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that an act of God. Well, I've got news for you. God ain't tearing up your house. He's not trying to kill your kids. He's not trying to do all of those things that a lot of people blame him for. And so the good news is you have a choice to determine what the outcome of those circumstances will be. All right? So let's get into this. Y'all ready? How about the rest of you? You ready? Yes. Are you believing God? Yes. Are, you, are you ready to receive some insight? Yes. Okay. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. 
And I want to read verses 10 through 17, a very familiar portion of Scripture. And uh, this is talking about, in Ephesians, what we call the armor of God. And uh, so I want to spend some time and teach you about one piece of this. And uh, so let's read it. Verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the trickery or the deceitfulness of the enemy. You know, every time I read that, I grew up on Saturday mornings watching Bugs Bunny. Anybody, okay, am I the only one who liked the Warner Brothers cartoons? Anybody remember a character called the Roadrunner? Who was it that was always after him? <clears throat> what was his name? Do you remember? Wiley Coyote. And you remember, he would do all kinds of stuff. And yeah, I thought about this the other day. Everything he bought and ordered, now this is before Amazon, you know, this is way back in the day. Everything came from Acme. You remember that? And how he would try and, and he would paint a tunnel entrance on the mountain and try and get the roadrunner to run into it. And the roadrunner would run into it and he would try it and it would backfire on him. But every time I read this scripture, I think about that because everything that the coyote was trying to do to capture the roadrunner was trickery and deceit. And so that's why he was called Wiley Coyote. And so you need to, and I'm not making light of this, but you need to understand your enemy, the devil, is just as wily and conniving and, and uh, trying to trick you as the coyote was. So, uh, again, put on, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You're not wrestling against your boss. You're not wrestling against your spouse. You're not wrestling against anybody else, flesh and blood. But you do contend with principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, I will do a little shameless plug here. I have, there are two or three series on our website uh, that you can go and listen to uh, about the armor of God. And it is very important that you understand some things about the entirety of of the armor of God, but the thing that the armor of God will enable you to do is to be able to stand. You know, I hear people say, or I've heard people say, you know, boy, I've had a hard week because the devil's had me on the run all week long. Well, you're not supposed to be running from him. You're supposed to be standing against him. Okay. So you, you have to have the whole armor of God on you to be able to to do that. So he says in verse 14, stand therefore having gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet uh, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, say above all. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able. Say I am able. Okay, so he said with the shield of faith and all the other parts and pieces, you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now again, all of these parts of the armor of God are very important, but I want to focus in on what's in verse 17 when he says, and take the helmet of salvation, and then particularly this part, and the sword of the Spirit. Say the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Say that. So he said, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this, he was in prison and literally uh, chained to and being guarded by a Roman soldier. And uh, I can, you know, fully imagine that that is one of the reasons that he uses this as an illustration is because the image of it was standing right there with him and guarding him the whole time. And not only that, during his time of before he went into the ministry, got saved and went into the ministry, you know, all of Israel was occupied by Rome at the time. So Roman soldiers were everywhere. And Roman soldiers prided themselves on the way that they appeared, particularly in an occupation type role because it struck fear in the hearts of the people that they were supposed to be uh, lording over, if you will, you know, dominating. And so they would, you know, they would parade, they would do all these things in order to uh, remind people about how powerful they were. So you would not be in a situation where a soldier in his official role would not have all of these parts and pieces of the armor on him, all right? So that is where Paul got this illustration. Now, in Paul's day, there were three types of swords that the Roman soldier would carry, all right? So if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the first type of sword that a Roman soldier would carry, and it's called a double-handed or two-handed, whichever you want to put, uh, sword. Now, this was a very heavy sword, and hence the name two-handed, because you really could not uh, wield this sword with just one hand, because it was so big and so heavy. And so you might, uh, you know, have seen one of these swords in the movies. By the way, let me say this to you. Anybody ever seen the movie Gladiator? with Russell Crowe. You remember the opening 30-minute battle that they start with where they're fighting the people in Germania and all of the things, that the, the warfare that they would use? And, uh, you know, so you would see the soldier and he would have one of these swords, but he would not take this into battle. Let me show you what this sword would look like. This is what it looked like. It was, it was long and it was very, very heavy. And so most of the time, the Roman soldier would use this two-handed, this double-handed sword to train with. And so they would spar with one another. Um, and, and what his goal was is to be able to build himself physically by being able to wield this sword with both hands and train with it. But it wasn't really all that effective in battle. Because again, it was so heavy and it required both hands. Now, if you remember in that opening scene of the movie, uh, when they finally got engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, they needed both of their hands 
and they needed access to the weapons that were more readily available to them. So this sword was not one that you would see a Roman soldier carry all the time. There was another type of sword that they would carry all the time, and that is called a long sword. So if you'll write that down, a long sword. And uh, this sword was longer and more narrow than that double-handed sword, and therefore it was lighter. And the, the soldier could use this sword with one hand. Now, if you can remember, and if you can picture this with me, what do you think, if, if he was wielding the sword in his left hand, what do you think was in his right hand? His shield, okay? Why? He had to protect himself from the blows of the enemy. And so this soldier would have this long sword. And what was interesting about this sword, it was very, very sharp, surgically sharp. And uh, he would use this and he could take this sword and, and even if his opponent was wearing armor, he could find places where he could run this sword across that, the adversary and cause deep gashes and cuts in that sword or in that soldier. But here's the thing, that person could survive those wounds, especially if they had armor on at the time. Okay, so you had the double-handed sword and you had the long sword, but there was a third sword. Oh, and by the way, here's what the long sword looked like. It was very similar to the double, but it was uh, shorter and, and again, lighter for him to be able to carry that. But in verse 17, Paul said this again. He said that take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Say sword of the spirit. Now Paul was very intentional in his writing and when he wrote this, he did not refer to the Greek that talks about the double-handed sword. He did not refer to the Greek that referred to the long sword. There is a Greek word that he used, and, and I, want, I want, to, want you to write this down because by the time we get through with today, you're going to be a Greek scholar. Aren't you glad? Yes. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just going to give you some Greek words so you can kind of understand them. And I, 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 I challenge you, get, get your concordance out, go online, whatever you need to do, and look at uh, the Greek word, behind this because it's very, very important. So when Paul said, take up the sword of the spirit, he used the Greek word and write this down, Machaira, Machaira, M-A-C-H-A-I-R-A. Now this Machaira was very specifically mentioned by Paul and it was a small dagger type sword. It was probably about oh, maybe 18 inches to two feet long. It was not that big. And it was definitely something that the soldier would keep in his sheath on his side, on his belt. And uh, let me show you a, a picture of this. And this sword was particularly important because this sword could fit in the gaps of an opponent's armor. So if an, if an opponent, opponent was wearing armor, you know, there were gaps. There was a gap here, there was a gap here, there was gaps here. You know, and if that Roman soldier aimed correctly, he could get that Machaira into those gaps and do a lot of damage. Now, what was interesting about the Machaira 
is that they would take it, and this is kind of graphic, but they would take it, they would get it very hot, and the pointed end on that, they would take and twist like a corkscrew. Or they would bend it up where it was a hook on the end of it. And the reason for that is they could jab it in an opponent and take it and yank it out. And you can imagine what a hook or a corkscrew would do on the inside of you as far as damage to your internal organs and so forth. The whole goal was to make your enemy defeated, powerless, and either dead then or going to die. In other words, his fighting days were over. And so Paul used this word, machaira. Here's another picture of a machaira where the end is kind of twisted up a little bit. And so you can see the damage that this would cause and the severe pain that it would cause. But there was something that was interesting about the machaira. You didn't use the machaira when you were 50 yards apart from one another. You used the machaira when you were face-to-face, close-up, and in hand-to-hand combat with your adversary. And so Paul tells us, he said, take up the machaira of the Spirit because you're going to be in some close hand-to-hand combat with your adversary. Now again, uh, (laughs) that doesn't sound very encouraging, but it is true. And you need to be prepared, okay? So this weapon, write this down please, this weapon causes great fear in an enemy. And it did with the uh, the enemies of the Roman soldiers, but I want you to understand something. The machaira of the spirit causes great fear in your adversary. And he hates the fact that I'm standing up here this morning and telling you about this because if you will learn to use it, his days of effectiveness in your life are coming to a close. Can you say amen? All right. So this weapon causes great fear in the heart of our adversary and his kingdom because spiritually speaking, it can slash demonic forces to shreds. Very, very powerful weapon, all right? Now let's look at the latter part of Ephesians 6, 17. And it says this, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, the machaira, which is the word of God. So he tells us that sword for us is the word of God. Say the word of God. God. Now the word of God, and again, Paul didn't, you know, I say this very often about Jesus. Jesus didn't do accidental and didn't do random. Paul was a super intelligent man, highly, highly educated. And so when he used specific words in his writings, it was on purpose. All right, so he said, take up all of the armor and so forth, but then take up the sword of the spirit, this machaira, which is the word of God. Now, it's more than, you know, we read this and we think the written word. And it is that to a degree, but Paul didn't use the word logos, which is generally what is attributed to, in the Greek, to the written word. He used a different word. Write this down, please. In Ephesians six seventeen, <clears throat> the Greek word for the word of God Paul used is the word 
Rhema, R-H-E-M-A, and it means more than just the written word of God. It means an inspired word that is spoken clearly and distinctly. So what Paul is telling us is you have in your arsenal, your weaponry, this Machaira sword, which is the word of God, but it is an inspired word that is spoken clearly and distinctly in your heart and then out of your mouth. And by the way, most of the time when Jesus referred to the word of God, he used the word rhema because it is very important. There is a big, big difference. Okay, so again, Paul said, take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, this Machaira, which is the word of God. And so then he used the word rhema, which again means an inspired word that is clearly spoken, uh, spoken clearly and distinctly. So let me paint you a picture of how this works and what is a rhema. If you want to in your notes, you want to just make a little note. A rhema is what we might call a quickened word. A quickened word word. What does that mean? Well, a quickened word is a, it's, it's a little different than just a Bible verse. A quickened word is a word that's in your heart, but is brought up in your consciousness into your thinking by the Holy Spirit at a particular moment of time to address maybe a specific need, a prayer, uh, something that might be happening in your life, the Holy Spirit will bring up out of your spirit a Bible verse that is quickened and at that moment is anointed to do something and be effective at that moment against your adversary. So at that moment, you know, you might be in prayer for someone or maybe you're praying about a situation for yourself. And all of a sudden as you're praying, there's a verse, a Bible verse that will arise in your heart. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's bringing up out of the treasury, the storehouse of your heart, word that's been deposited there and he's quickened it or inspired it for that particular moment and situation. Now, it's not enough that he just brings that up into your heart. The reason that he brings that up into your heart is not so you can say, yay, I've had a quickened word. No, he brings that up into your heart so you can take that quickened word and open your mouth and put it in your mouth and use that Machaira sword. In other words, when you have an inspired word that rises up in your heart about that situation, about that need, about whatever it is that you might be praying about, and then you speak that out of your mouth, it's the same thing as that Roman soldier taking that Machaira and jabbing it into a vulnerable point of his enemy, his adversary, and causing great harm. Okay, so you, you know you might be in prayer, and, and here's the cool thing about this, and, and, and I hope you can grasp this, 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, Paul wrote and he said, you know, in my paraphrasation, but there are going to be times when you don't know how to pray as you ought. But the Spirit himself who makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered makes intercession for us according to the will of God. How many of you have ever been in a situation and you didn't know how to pray? You, you know, somebody came to you, had a need, or maybe you find out about a situation and you're like, wow, Lord, I really don't know how to address that. I don't know what to pray for. Well, how many of you know the Holy Ghost is a whole lot smarter than we are? Okay, he's God. So he knows everything. He knows exactly what is needed at that moment. Now, let me tell you what is happening at that moment that that happens. What Paul described in Romans 8, 26. See, the Bible says that the, the Lord Jesus is at, seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for you. Okay, do you believe the Bible? Okay, do you believe Jesus is praying for you? Okay, well, I, I think you can maybe use a little common sense and figure out it's not a one-way conversation, okay? In other words, Jesus, by the way, your prayer shouldn't be a one-way conversation, but that's a whole different message, okay? But Jesus is at the right hand of the Father talking about you and praying for you. What is he praying? He's praying things like, Father, I know what they are facing at this moment, but I died and I shed my blood and I paid the price to set them free and bring deliverance in that particular area. So, Father, as far as we're concerned, as far as heaven is concerned, they are free in Jesus' name, in my name. I paid the price for them to be healed and set free from sickness and disease. I paid the price for them to not have to be tormented in poverty and lack and insufficiency. I paid the price for them to be free. Now, there's a third member of the Godhead that is here in the earth, but how many of you know being part of the Godhead, he can be everywhere at the same time? Okay, I'm not trying to be too deep on you, but listen to me. The Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of you is also in the throne room with God. He's privy to those conversations that are happening between God the Father and the Son. That Jesus is interceding for you. The things that Jesus is declaring over you in his intercession, the Holy Spirit hears that. Now, the Holy Spirit hears that, but the Holy Spirit is also on the inside of you. So what the Holy Spirit will do is bring to your remembrance or up out of your spirit what is being said about you and about your situation between Jesus and the Father. He will bring those words up on the inside of you. Not so again, you can say, ooh, I received a revelation. No, he does that so you can get in on the action. Are you listening to me? Okay. I don't want to lose you, but this is very, very important. So what the Holy Spirit does is he will cause a word 
to come up on the inside of you. And what happens is, as you meditate, you think about that word. You know, it might be a part of a scripture. It might be a, a phrase of a scripture. It might be a whole scripture. It might be two or three verses. But when the Holy Spirit brings that up on the inside of you and you begin to think about it, what happens is the power that is contained in that word begins to get released on the inside of you. All right? So what happens is sooner or later, you can't keep that quiet. You have to say it. And when you release those words out of your mouth, it becomes that, that sharp, scalpel, you know, scalpel sharp sword that is made available to you to go to work against your adversary. Are you listening to me? I haven't lost you, have I? Okay, all right. Now, so part of your armor that is available to you is this Machaira. Again, Ephesians 6, 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the Machaira of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, a rhema word, okay? So let me, let me say this to you. There is nothing, uh, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from the Logos Word of God, the written Word of God. Because without the Logos, you can't have a rhema. Okay, what, what do I mean by that? It takes getting this down here so the Holy Ghost can have a rhema to work with. Okay, does that make sense to you? All right, go over with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the book everybody's scared of. <laughs> Okay, not really. Can I give you just a little side note? Can I give you a little helpful hint whenever you're reading the book of Revelation? Okay, this is where people miss it when they go to study Revelation, the book of Revelation. By the way, it's, it's not Revelations. It's not plural. It's Revelation. And if you read the first few verses of the book, it says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this, it does not say this is a revealing of the boogeyman, the antichrist and all the horrible things that are gonna happen during the tribulation period and all of that. See, what, where people get off studying the book of Revelation is they began to look at all those things and focus their attention on those things and Jesus never meant for you to focus on those things. He wants you to be aware of them but it's a revelation of him. You need to study the book of Revelation looking for Jesus, not the Antichrist, okay? Because when you study for the Antichrist and you're looking for the Antichrist and, and you get obsessed with the Antichrist and what's happening, you know, or are we pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, you know, and our leaving here and, you know, as far as the rapture is concerned and all that, people get all caught up in those things when really, I mean, it's okay to know those things, but listen, that has nothing to do with your salvation. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that has everything to do with your salvation. But if you want to study the book of Revelation, as you're reading, look and see and look for Jesus, 
Okay? All right. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I could tell that really excited you. Okay, so here we go. Verse 10. Paul, or excuse me, John the Apostle wrote and he said this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now the voice was not saying I'm part of a fraternity. <laughs> okay, I just thought I'd mention that. Okay, he was not saying that at all. Anybody want to guess who's talking here? Who's doing the speaking? When he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega? Huh? What's his name? Don't be scared to say it. What's his name? Okay, all right. So he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek for I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he gave John instructions. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are literal, physical churches that were in existence uh, at this particular time. Some of them Paul started, uh, but this is John. And so verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now I want you to pause here for just a second. And I want to remind you about something. This is the Apostle John, who was one of the 12 apostles. This is the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee. You remember him? They were fishermen, along with Peter and Andrew. Okay, same apostle, same guy. This is the same man who wrote the Gospel of John. This is the same man that uh, if you read his Gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He and Jesus, Peter, James, and John, probably had the closest, most intimate relationship with Jesus while Jesus was here on the earth. He was very important to the Lord. He meant a lot to the Lord, so much so that you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down and he saw his mother Mary and John the apostle was standing next to her and he said something very precious. He said to uh, John, he said, behold your mother and to Mary, he said, behold your son. And uh, so from that day forward, even until John was uh, exiled and, and Mary passed away, John took care of the mother of the Lord. He took care of Mary. Uh, they all ended up attending the church in Ephesus. They moved to Ephesus and became part of that church there. Now I say all that to say, just think about with me for a moment, if you had traveled with lived with, ate with, spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with someone that you ministered with, that you loved, that you admired, and you spent all of this intimate time with him while he was here in the earth. The man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, think about that. Think about how your mind would be shaped by that. Your heart would be shaped by that. Think about how what would be going across your mind when you look up and there's the, the, the man that you have loved and admired and respected and 
you, you had such a close brotherhood and friendship with who died on a cross. And then you saw him some days later raised from the dead and, and, and you were able to spend time with him again, but he still looked like you and me. Okay? Now the reason I say that is because we're getting ready to see what John's response was when he saw Jesus in his divinity for the first time. Okay? He said he was, uh, his voice was, uh, let's see, then I turned and I saw the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. In other words, he looked like Jesus, but he didn't look like Jesus. He didn't look like the Jesus I knew. Okay? And uh, clothed with garment down to the feet and gird about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as, a, as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. You know, he had heard Jesus preach. He had heard Jesus speak. But now when he heard Jesus speak, it was as demonstrative and powerful as if you were standing next to Niagara Falls. Anybody ever stood next to Niagara Falls? It's deafening. It's loud. Okay? And so his voice as the sound of many waters. Now notice this. John noted, he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You ever been outside in the middle of the day, you know, let's think of summer day, and, and you ever noticed, I mean, you just looked up and the sun was so bright, you were like, oh, you can't look at it. It's so bright. That's the way he described the face of the Lord when he saw him. You know, the Bible says in Revelation that all of heaven is lit by the light that shines forth out of the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what's cool about heaven is there are no shadows. You know, the reason we have shadows is because light comes from one direction here in the earth. There, the light that shines out of the face of the Lord Jesus shines all around. There are no shadows in heaven. And so, but I want, I want, what I want to point out to you is that verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth, say mouth, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. He didn't have this sword in his hand. It came out of his mouth and his countenance was like the sun shining in the day. Now, what's interesting about this phrase and the reason John, and John didn't write stuff accidentally either, this is intentional, he described Jesus as having a two-edged sword cutting, coming out of his mouth. The Greek word that John used here is, is a compound word. It's D-I-S, I'll show it to you in a second, S-T-O-M-O-S, Diastomos. Now, if you're familiar with chemistry and all of that, when you have dye preceding something, it means two, correct? Okay, so 
In the Greek, when Paul, or excuse me, I keep calling him Paul, when John used this word, write this down, please. When the word dystamos is used, it describes something that is two-mouthed, dice meaning two, stomos meaning mouth, two-mouthed or twice spoken. Hmm. So John said Jesus had a sword coming out of his mouth and, and that Greek word actually says he had coming out of his mouth words that were twice spoken. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Now why would, would John use this word? Because he knows the power of what happens when the word of God comes out of the mouth of God. He was there when Jesus spoke to the tree and the tree crumpled and withered. He was there when Jesus stood in the bow of the boat and said, peace be still, and the winds and the rains ceased. He was there when Jesus opened his mouth and spoke and the power of God got revealed and manifested in the earth. John witnessed that. But what John is wanting us to see is that the word of God becomes diastomos, twice spoken, when God says it first and then you say it second. And when that word is twice spoken, it becomes powerful, it becomes uh, what God wants it to be and it will accomplish the thing that the Lord sent it to accomplish. Okay? Let me say this to you. I, I, I'm running out of time. Write this down, please. Nothing, say nothing. nothing. Nothing is more powerful than a word that comes first out of God's mouth and then comes out of your mouth. Nothing. Nothing is more powerful than a word that God speaks and then you repeat. In other words, you put your mouth on it just like God put his mouth on it. You know, I, I, the scriptures are, are referenced there in your notes, but just for the sake of time, I, um, we won't look at it. But you remember in Luke chapter four when Jesus was facing the temptation, you remember where he fasted for 40 days and he was in the wilderness and the Bible says the devil came and tempted him and there were three temptations that were brought to Jesus and there was a reason that it was those three, which I won't get into today. But what did Jesus do to overcome each of those temptations? Did he pray about it? No, he didn't. He didn't pray at all. What did he do? He opened his mouth and used a dystamos to address the temptation. Satan would present a temptation to him and Jesus would say, no, it is written. When was it said the first time? When God inspired the prophet to write it the first time. And then Jesus put it in his mouth, making it that, that two mouth, that twice spoken sword. And what happened? It was able to stop the enemy. Three times. And the Bible says at the end of the temptation that the devil left him. So what I'm wanting you to see is if you're wanting to defeat the enemy, if you're wanting to defeat problems, if you're wanting to, 
to gain the victory in your life that Jesus wants you to have, then it's not enough for you to just get excited about the Bible. It's not just enough for you to get excited about what the Word says. You're going to have to get it down in your heart and say it with your mouth and speak the Word of God. Now, the next time that you're in close combat with the devil, I want you to get out your Makaira and I want you to go to work on him. I can't do that, Pastor. Yes, you can. Don't call me and get me to get my Makaira out to fight your battle for you. I'll agree with you, but you're going to have to do some fighting. Now, that sounds mean and that sounds mad, but I'm not. It's just the truth. <laughs> All right? So the next time you're in close combat with the devil, take the time to get quiet so that the Holy Spirit, before you open your mouth, before you do anything, say, Lord... How do I deal with this thing? Lord, what is it I need to do here? What is it I need to say? And give time for the Holy Spirit to bring that up out of your spirit. I want to give you three things real quick. Write this down. We're done. All right? Here's three things that will help you again. And this is kind of continuing what we talked about last week. All right, let me skip over the scriptures, the temptation of Christ. You can read that. That's your homework assignment. That's Luke chapter 4. And number one is this, okay? Number one, I got it. <laughs> They're back there mashing buttons and stuff. All right, number one, be proactive and not always reactive. You know, you hear that business a lot. You know, you need to learn to be proactive, okay? Well, it's true as a believer, Proactive means you're ahead of the game. In other words, you don't wait for the crisis to hit before you do something. You get ready before the crisis hits. So be proactive and not always reactive. Here's number two. Begin to build in your heart the arsenal of the Word of God, of God's Word, that the Holy Spirit can draw upon in those times of battle. You know, I was talking to, to someone this week and ministering to them, and they're dealing with the situation where <clears throat> they have a loved one that is fighting a cancer battle, and they're a believer. And uh, so, you know, and, and this is not a criticism of anybody. It just is what it is. Um, so they're asking me, you know, how do people find themselves in this situation where they're, you know, this is a believer who loves Jesus and, um, you know, and when they got the diagnosis, then they started trying to build their faith house. It's not impossible, but it's very hard at that point. Okay. And so they're, they were struggling. And so this person is struggling and it, you know, looks like by all indications, that they're going to go home to be with the Lord. Well, first of all, that's not a failure. You know, that I could think of worse places to be than heaven. How about you? Okay. All right. So, uh, we, you know, we're not being critical at all. But let me, let me use that as an example and say this to you. That the time to build your faith where healing is concerned is when you feel great and you have not gotten a bad report from the doctor. Be proactive. Build your arsenal 
in your heart before you really need it. Look at what John 14, verse 26 in the Passion Bible says this, but when the Father sends the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, the one like me who sets you free, he will teach you all things in my name and he will inspire you to remember every word that I have told you. See, the Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is, and by the way, they didn't have the word of God like we do. They were living it. They were walking the gospels when Jesus said that. We have the gospels. So, you know, we have written record that we can go and we can study and we can get down in our heart. And when we do, the Holy Spirit will inspire you to remember specific things that are in God's word that pertain to that situation. Okay? All right. Then lastly, the, the scripture says this, James 4, 7, therefore, Submit to God. Resist who? Resist who? God? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That flee, you know, we don't talk about that very much. We don't use that word very often. You know, we say run away. Okay? And that's actually what that means. Therefore, if you submit to God and then from that place of submitting to God... You resist the devil, he will flee from you. Do you believe the Bible? Okay. So if the Bible says you resist him and he will flee, do you believe that that's true? Okay. All right. Well, guess what? Here, let me say this to you. When you do resist, the devil's going to try and get you to believe something. You know what he's going to try and get you to believe? He ain't going nowhere. Matter of fact, he didn't run away at all. I'm still here, okay? No, no, I resist you in Jesus' name and you have to go, okay? Look at this last point, write this down, number three. Put the word in your mouth and use that sword to cause the enemy to flee. Now, you know, the devil is no fool. You beat him up a couple of times with that Makaira, you pull that thing out, he's going to know, okay, I can't stick around here very long. These folks have learned what to do. They know what to do. They know how to handle themselves in battle. So I'm not going to let this, you know, work on me like I did before, okay? So what I want you to see is, is that you put the word in your mouth, you resist him, and he will flee. One, one translation says that he will flee from you as in stark terror, you scare him. Now, he doesn't want you to understand that or know that, but when you put the word in your heart and put the word in your mouth, that is scary to him, okay? Why? Because Jesus just annihilated him one time or several times with that principle. Amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church Podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.